Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome back, Sleuth Hounds. I am so happy and excited to be back with you this week. I am also so thankful for each of you and that out of all of the podcasts that are out there, you have decided to spend time with us again this week. You know, some days it just feels so surreal to be surrounded by constant high levels of uncertainty and so much that's out of our control that something like a podcast episode coming out consistently each week somehow matters. At least it matters to me. I need this podcast. I love this podcast. And I think this podcast does good work. That's why Maggie and I are so passionate about it. And I hope you are as well. So please continue to listen. Please continue to probe into the uncertain to help find answers. The hope that there can be certainty or closure, a sense of resolution, is something all too familiar for all of us right now. It's the thread that binds. If you're new to Coffee and Cases, please know that our podcast has changed slightly as our world is, as we say each week, continuing to adjust to this global pandemic. While we are being asked to keep our distance from others, to stay inside when possible, and to not gather in large groups, we ask that you bear with us as our podcast has changed a little as well. Until we can return to normal, take care of yourselves. I know it's hard, but try to see the end goal. Know that things may look different than they did before, but please don't lose faith. Continue to love one another. Thank you for bearing with us and for understanding. We care about you. Stay together, united in the human spirit, even if not physically, and stay safe. Now, on to this week's episode. Maggie and I are always looking for cases to cover in our podcast. We know that covering the big cases like Madeline McCann, John Benet Ramsey, Lacey Peterson, those could get us a lot of listens. But Maggie and I care more about answers. We like to cover the cases that normally don't get the publicity. We cannot let cases fade into obscurity because the names get forgotten. Cases like the one I'm going to cover today aren't talked about in a lot of podcasts because it's plagued by an unfortunate common trend that we see in cold cases, a lack of information. I'll be honest, sleuthhounds, when I research a case, and I'm sure for Maggie it's the same, they're usually upwards of several hundreds of pages, sometimes even thousands, of information that I comb through for evidence, for details, and in this case, I only found tens of pages, and most was the same information over and over in different words, but... 
just because this episode doesn't have as many details as some, just because there isn't as much to go on, does not mean that this case should be ignored. I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I put popularity over purpose. Every single person is worthy of acknowledgement. Every missing person needs an advocate. The missing person in this case is no different. This is the story of David Vernon Lovely. Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the cases will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, because, as we all know, conversation helps to keep the missing person in the public consciousness, helping keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. Before I begin our show today, I wanted to take just a second to remind you about our challenge. With the amount of work and heart that Maggie and I put into this podcast, in addition to our full-time jobs as teachers, we want to not only know in our hearts, and we do, that this adventure of ours is worth it, but I'm not going to lie, we also need to feel it from you. Much of what Maggie and I do are jobs that we know have value, intrinsic value for us because we know we're doing our part to make a difference, to make this world better. But they can also sometimes be thankless jobs. In terms of a podcast, it's easy to feel like we're speaking into a void, which is why we love hearing from you. We want to get to 150 ratings on iTunes, and we can only get there with help from you. Try to set one goal this week, something in your control, and share about our podcast with at least two people. Then we'll be able to reach our goal just a little bit quicker. We currently have 103 ratings, so we are inching closer, but if you haven't taken a second to rate our show on iTunes, you still can. And if you have a few seconds longer, also leave us a few words about what you enjoy most about the podcast. We have listeners from all over the world. So while this is a big ask, we know that you can do it. When we get to 150 ratings, Maggie and I will do another bonus episode. Just make sure that you follow us on social media, Coffee and Cases Podcast on Facebook, or at Coffee Cases Podcast on Instagram. Or as always, listen in each week to know when that bonus episode will air. Now, let's get into our show. With the hot August sun beating down on them, 19-year-old David Vernon Lovely, as well as his mother, Jackie Abbott, 
and his sister began their trek from California to Massachusetts. The family had decided to move to California years ago from Massachusetts, and they had just recently decided to move back. So David, for one, was excited. He had missed his friends there dearly and was really looking forward to seeing them again. David's mom and his sister were traveling in a large rider truck loaded down with all of their possessions, and David followed behind them on his maroon 1978 model 1100 Yamaha motorcycle, equipped with a luggage rack, saddlebags, and marked by the California license plate number 8N3477. His friends might give him a hard time at first, the joking jabs about forgetting about them when he arrived back in Massachusetts, but David knew that they would quickly slide back into those easy friendships that they had previously enjoyed. You see, David was kind. He was bright. According to an article by Megan Cassidy in the Casper Star Tribune, David's mother noted that he loved English literature. Not going to lie, soft spot in my heart there since I teach literature. I know Maggie will agree. He loved nature, the arts, music, theater, drawing. He was a thinker and a dreamer. David was also an anomaly. Looking at his six foot four frame, one would easily think that he was a formidable athlete. However, David's body was fragile. When he was born, one kidney was too large a situation which led to many surgeries as a young boy, and his mother reported that he was hospitalized for months due to infections, excessive scar tissue. So while David was now 19 and looked the part of an athlete, the scar across his abdomen was a reminder of the doctor's strict orders that he could never play sports. One strong hit to that scarred area could lead to serious and dangerous complications, even death. Now, I give you this background so you understand the why behind the fact I'm getting ready to tell you. David's mother and his sister decided that they would stop their moving van every 30 miles, about 48 kilometers, to check on David. I know nothing about riding motorcycles, so I have no idea how comfortable or uncomfortable that might be to ride one for such a long distance, but I do know that places in the United States like Daytona, Florida have Bike Week, where thousands of bikers take a trek of hundreds or thousands of miles to attend, so I can't imagine that comfort is a reason for such frequent stopping to check on David. What I imagine is that his mother was worried about fatigue, about accidents, or about David's health, and just wanted to make sure that he was always safe since he wasn't riding in the moving truck with them. Only an act of love or true concern would justify stopping every 30 miles when the total trip that they were about to make from California to Massachusetts was right about 3,000 miles or 4,828 kilometers. 
On August 5th, 1985, with about 20% of the trip behind them already, David's mother begged them to stop in Salt Lake City, Utah to swim in the Great Salt Lake. Now, again, something else I'm not familiar with, but I've never traveled there myself. I am curious about what it would feel like to swim there, though. It's a lake with white, sandy beaches, and it's also a body of water that's three to five times saltier than the ocean. And as many of you might know, the greater the salt level, the greater the upward buoyant force on your body. In layman's terms, the more salt, the easier you float. So I'm curious to see if it would feel any different than the ocean. And it was that stop for a quick swim that it's one of David's mother's favorite memories of him. As cited in an article by Megan Cassidy, Jackie Oppett, David's mother, said, quote, I was thrilled just to be refreshed by going swimming. The water was perfect and the day was perfect, end quote. But Jackie had gone for the swim alone as the children had trouble finding a parking spot. The memory, her favorite one, came right after When David came to the lake to retrieve his mother and let her know that his sister couldn't find a place to park the moving truck, he had carried his mother back to his sister and the moving van. And she recalls she climbed on the back of his Yamaha. She hugged his back tightly. And this is something I do understand. I get the warmth of that feeling. There is nothing better than to just sit in an armchair with my daughter squeezed so tightly between me and the chair that she has to snuggle in close, a constant hug. And as David and his mother drove the short distance to the moving van, she drew herself close to her son and she said to him, We have to do this again someday. Unfortunately, Sleuth Hounds, August 5th, 1985, was also the day on which Jackie Abbott's worst nightmare happened as well. Now, nearly 35 years later, that someday has never come because on that very day, her son David disappeared. When Jackie and her daughter wanted to stop again after that swim, for a little bit longer of a stop, only about 80 some miles later in Evanston, Wyoming, David wanted to keep going. Remember I told you, he was excited to get back and this was just another delay. And so he didn't really want to stop again. That's one reason. But also his bike had been giving him a little bit of trouble. And he told his mom and his sister that he wanted to go ahead and ride to the next rest stop and see if there happened to be a mechanic there who could take a look at his bike. Knowing that they would be following right behind, they told David to go ahead of them and hopefully get his bike checked out. David had $150 in cash on him, so that should be enough to get work done. Now, I don't know about you, Sleuth Hounds, but 
even though I grew up before a lot of modern technology, it still seems hard to imagine a time before Google Maps, or at least MapQuest, which is what I grew up having to use. And it's also hard to imagine a time before cell phones. So, you know, without cell phones, with no way of getting in touch with his mother and his sister, when David arrived at the rest stop, he decided to call his aunt his mom's sister and give her an update and that makes sense that she be the person that David called since Jackie his mother would call her sister each night to give her an update on their travels when David called his aunt from a payphone at the rest stop he told her that he had driven on past his mother and sister because his bike was giving him trouble and that it had indeed broken down on him after he had left his family in Evanston and he said that he had had to pull over push it to the side of the road and then push his bike three miles to the bingo truck stop in Fort Bridger Wyoming he told his aunt that a quote rough looking man with his own bicycle had offered to fix David's bike he also told his aunt that he was initially scared of this man and some reports that I read say that in the conversation David later added that the biker ended up being a nice guy who fixed his bike without charging him anything for the repair but other reports just end with the fear Either way, though, the man did fix David's bike for him, and he asked his aunt to pass along the message that he was going to be continuing on and that he would meet up with his family in Rock Springs. David noted that the man who had fixed his bike had done so without tools and had made it, quote, better than it was, which, if the bike weren't running at all, then anything would have made it better than it was and that's a turn of phrase that I use all the time when something seems pretty bad and I can make any improvement I say well anything is better than it was so when I read that in the research that's how I take that statement meanwhile David's mother and sister had left Evanston and went to the next rest stop expecting to see David. When they didn't see him, they decided to wait. Maybe he was just running a little bit behind, not to worry. So his mother and sister decided to stay the night in the moving truck, again with an eye out for David. And David's mom, from all accounts I read, stayed awake all night long to keep an eye out in case he rolled in, just knowing that they would see him either that evening or in the morning. Well, when David wasn't there by the next day, his mother Jackie began to get nervous. What if something else had happened or the bike had broken down? So Jackie called her sister and found out from her that David's bike had broken down, but that he had gotten it fixed and was going to meet them in Rock Springs. So relief hit. That's where he was. When they arrived in Rock Springs, though, there was still no sign of David. Well, if his bike were fixed, where was he? So they stopped in Rock Springs, as I just mentioned. Then they thought, maybe he decided to continue on. So they stopped again in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Then they stopped a few nights in Nebraska. 
David's mother eventually, when they never caught up with him, decided that the best course of action was to speak to the police. She went to the Nebraska State Police to see if anyone had reported seeing him. She gave them a description of her son, of his bike. They told David's mother, though, that no one matching his description had been seen, and there wasn't really much that they could do. After all, David was 19. The fact that he wasn't where he told his mother he would be wasn't an immediate red flag for police. And sadly, because many teenagers run away or they go off the grid for a few days at a time and then return, many reports of missing teenagers just aren't taken seriously, at least not immediately. Assumptions are made. He probably just stopped to have some fun. He wanted a taste of freedom. He'll be back. But for David, they were wrong. They did get into Jackie and her daughter's head. Maybe David was okay. Maybe he just decided to continue on toward Massachusetts. He was so excited. Maybe when they got to their final destination, they would get there only to see David's smiling face and to be jibed with, what took you so long, comments. But David didn't show up there either. Now, A lot of people in this case might criticize David's mother and sister for continuing on, but even though I initially understood that criticism, ultimately I have to say that I disagree. If I'm honest with myself, I can understand their actions. You know, I want to say that I would have stayed put at the rest area or at least just traveled back and forth to cover the last 90 miles or so, continually looking everywhere for my son, but I'll give you a little snippet and it'll explain why I say when I'm being honest with you, I might have continued on too. Just last week, I went to Walmart with my husband Rodney to pick up a few groceries. My stepdaughter and her boyfriend waited for us in the vehicle outside. Well, trying to be quick because they were waiting on us, Rodney and I split up the list, even though his list only had three items and mine had closer to 20. The items were on opposite sides of the store, so we decided to divide and conquer. As I walked away, Rodney said something that sounded like 10 minutes, but I couldn't be sure because by the time I turned around to ask what he had said, he was already walking away. So I thought, well, I think he said 10 minutes. I'll just hurry. So I pushed the cart down the aisles like a mad woman, rushing through the list. Admittedly, it took me longer than 10 minutes, despite my efforts. It still took me about 25 to find everything. But I went to the checkouts and started looking for Rodney. I looked through all 20 of the checkouts and couldn't find him anywhere. I waited impatiently and no husband. So I went in the store where I thought he might be for his items and he wasn't there either. Well, then I thought, 
maybe I took too long, and he went on out to the car. So I called my stepdaughter to see if he was already outside, and she told me that he hadn't come out yet. Well, after searching again through basically the entire store, I finally found him. Now, I know that that seems inconsequential and small, and it is, but my point is that I couldn't even stay in one spot for 10 minutes because I knew he was somewhere. I just had to keep moving to keep myself occupied. I needed to find him. And that's why I say I understand his mom and his sister's thought process. And it had to be, well, if he isn't here, then he has to be somewhere. And we know where he's headed. There is an end destination. And they were both traveling on the same route. So they must be thinking, well, eventually we'll cross paths and it could literally be at any moment. So let's just continue on. But a second problem plagued the situation as well. With David being from California, heading to Massachusetts and disappearing in either Wyoming or Nebraska. Whose jurisdiction was this? David's sister reports that each of the state police agencies argued that the case should be the responsibility of a different agency. And so that led to even further complications about looking for this missing son. Nine days after David disappeared, on August 14th, part of the family's hope disappeared as well. David's motorcycle was discovered in a rural area in Sweetwater County in Rock Springs, Wyoming. Only then did the authorities take the case more seriously. When the bike was found, it was in running condition, had half of a tank of gas, and the keys were still in the ignition. But this begs the question, if the bike were fixed, where was David? Searches of the area produced nothing. No evidence, no body, no David. The only thing authorities had to go on was that the two campers who had discovered David's bike and alerted police also noted that a few days before they found the motorcycle, they had seen someone else on a motorcycle ride away from the general area where they discovered the bike. Unfortunately, they did not get a good look at the biker. Maggie and I have said this before, When you don't know that something is going to be significant until after it has happened, you don't pay attention to the details. The person who drove the other motorcycle out, when the two campers saw that cyclist, they didn't know that that sighting would be significant. So all they recalled is that the person had long, dark brown hair and as such could have been a man or a woman, the one distinct detail that they did both remember was that the person's motorcycle was turquoise and chrome, so striking enough colors to stand out in their memory. Was this the same biker as the one from the truck stop who had helped to fix David's bike? We don't know. 
When police found the bike, they found also David's blue bag and some of his books were stacked neatly beside the bike. No other clues. And that's part of the mystery, sleuth hounds. I mean, surely if someone had hurt David or abducted him, there would be some sign of a struggle, right? Markings in the dirt, uh, things in disarray, but there just wasn't. And if David had been able to do so, then surely in the days between when he contacted his aunt on the 5th and when his bike was discovered on the 14th, he would have gone back to town to call his aunt again, even if just to set his mother's mind at ease, knowing that she would be wondering where he was. And this fact alone seems to indicate that whatever happened to David likely happened on the 5th or the 6th. Additionally, if something happened to David on the 5th or the 6th, is it really likely that the biker spotted by the two campers days later can be linked to the disappearance since that person, right, wasn't reported until the 14th and they said, well, we just saw that person a few days earlier? I mean, that would mean that if that biker is the perpetrator, that the biker had stayed near the scene of the crime for several days. Couldn't the person on the turquoise bike be merely a coincidence? I question, though. Of course, it might be a coincidence. Absolutely. Or the person who committed the crime could have come back to the scene of the crime to see if he or she had left any clues behind, had returned to wipe away footprints, fingerprints, and the like. But then we have to question, for what purpose? David, from all accounts, does not seem the type of person to stir up any animosity. The amount of money he had on him, while worth around $300 today, doesn't seem a large enough amount to me to kill someone over. And the bike was worth money as well. And it was left behind in running condition with gas in the tank. It could have easily been driven away, sold for parts. One possibility in my mind, as well as that of many who look at this case, is that David might have been mugged. He could have fought to protect both himself and the money that he had, and in retaliation, the perpetrator might have hit David in the stomach, thinking that David would merely be incapacitated. However, because of David's medical history, remember he couldn't play sports because of the danger, that punch might have killed him. The bike could have been driven to that remote spot where it was found and arranged there to make it look like David had just walked away from it. If that is the case, then in my mind, I would think that David's body would be elsewhere in Sweetwater County and not hidden in the same place as the bike. But 
Sadly, the little information I could find indicated that there had been heavy rains in the area before the bike was discovered, making it impossible to retrieve fingerprints from the bike itself. Another alternative would be that David had a health emergency or that he was just getting tired and had pulled off the road to rest. Or since David was known to love nature, perhaps there was something intriguing or beautiful in the landscape that drew him from the road. He might have decided to explore and come into trouble. He might have gotten lost or fallen into a ravine. After all, another theory that the gruff-looking man who had fixed his bike was the one to hurt David, well, that wouldn't be very smart, seeing as how there would have been so many people who had seen him helping David at the bingo truck stop who could provide testimony. What gives me pause in thinking that David had just walked away, though, is how far the bike was off of the main road that campers discovered it. To me, someone unfamiliar with the area, even if David had decided to stop for the night, wouldn't have gone that far off of the beaten path. Sleuthhounds, it seems when the small amount of evidence that we have is weighed, it measures up to one large problem. No theory makes complete sense. Megan Cassidy reports that it took years after David's disappearance in 1985 before his mother could even put his pictures back up in her home. To be able to look into the eyes of the beloved child that she feared she would never again see in the flesh. She reports that since David's disappearance, quote, Family members have revisited the site of his motorcycle, called every David Lovely in the phone book, kept tabs on his social security number usage, and even enlisted a psychic to try and locate him, end quote. Jackie Abbott has tried to explore every possibility to find her baby boy. It's the unknown that hurts and haunts her the most. One thing we can do, sleuth hounds, is to not let the name of David Vernon Lovely suffer the same fate of slipping into the unknown. Share his story with others. Be his advocate. Ask questions of those from the area at the time who might have heard stories. Offer suggestions. Keep his family and your thoughts. And remember our purpose. Always, always keep faith. Anyone with information about this case is asked to call the Sweetwater County, Wyoming Sheriff's Department at 307-872-6350. Again, please like and join our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Twitter at Cases Coffee, on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. 
Please tell your friends about our podcast so more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you you next week. week.